This Monday, March 8th, is International Women's Day, and this month is Women's History Month. So to celebrate, we're going to be looking back at some of the most inspirational women leaders I've featured on this show. I'm going to share some of my favorite moments with guests like Joy Cho, Erin Condren, Reshma Sujani, Gretchen Rubin, Stacey Flowers, and Lisa Villeux. What's so cool about this collection of women is I'm going back all the way to the beginning of the show, back in, gosh, like 2016, 2017, when I did not know what I was doing and I literally just called every woman (laughs) in my phone and asked them if they would please be a guest on this podcast and share in conversation with me. And I can tell you without question that every single person who has come into this ecosystem has brought their own wisdom and insights and cultural experiences and stories to tell. And we have all benefited from this knowledge. I think if I've learned anything in doing this podcast over the last however many years, it's that We as women have to feel empowered to use our voice and tell our story. I mean, if you're listening to this, P.S., thank you. I appreciate the support. But all I can do ever is tell you my perspective, my perspective growing up in the exact way, the exact environment, the exact place in the world that I was raised. But you listening to this right now, you have stories, you have perspective, you have something that the world needs to hear. It's not enough to only have the voices speaking that we already know. Maybe you're the next person who's supposed to be talking about what matters, And if you're curious about what matters, it's what matters to you. That's what I hope that y'all get out of this podcast episode, or honestly, my work in general. I hope that you see an example of a woman, that's me, who is not particularly special. I just have told my story again and again. And as I have continued to evolve as a woman, I've continued to tell you what's happening in my life and how I'm working through it and what it's meant to me. And somewhere in all of those stories, I hope that even if what worked for me doesn't work for you, it at least gives you an idea of how to think about your own life. So in these conversations, I hope you enjoy the stories of some of the most incredible women I know. And if you are a woman, I hope you understand that you are among those ranks. If you have an idea in your heart or something that you want to create, I believe that it's there for a reason. And in this month of celebrating women's stories and celebrating women's history, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to write your own. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. 
when we spoke on that panel together, one of the things I loved that you talked about was, um, I hate to ask the, I, I have not asked anybody that I've spoken to on the podcast about having guilt as a working mom, because I tend to hate that. I feel like those are the only questions that they ask women in business is about work-life balance. And it makes me gag because we are more than that. But I do remember you said something that I really loved where, and I'm probably going to misquote you here, but you were talking about struggling a little bit with that and then getting to go to target for the first time and showing your daughter the end cap and what that meant to you for her to see all of your work come to fruition. Do you remember that story or am yes. I making up lies about your life that I just imagined? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I imagine this scenario for you, Joy. I'm very impressed that you remember that, Rachel, number one. Oh, I thought um, it was so precious. I thought like you. what an incredible gift for your daughter to get to watch her mom do these things. Yeah, and I think that um, it all kind of – came together around 2014 when our first Target collection came out because I had just had, um, I think actually I was pregnant with my second and, and Ruby, my oldest was around three. So that's the age where they kind of start to a little bit understand stuff. And she had gotten to see me at a photo shoot. She'd gotten to see like stuff, but it really wasn't until the products came out in stores. And I think especially with our, our collaborations that came out last year, 2016, by that point she was four years old and to see my face on a package, she understood that mommy's company was called Ojoy and that I was in, that I was the boss of Ojoy. And so to see it and we go every time we have a new collection come out, which happens like four to six times a year, we go to the store on that day, we take a picture, we celebrate it. Like, Part of that is me wanting them to know that it's a great accomplishment to have achieved this. And mm -hmm. part of I want them and my husband to get to see it in the stores because they're not seeing the samples and the process and the sketches and the design work and all of that stuff. But it was really, it really took me up until around that point when I felt like my kids could tangibly understand what I do, or at least one part of what I do to feel less guilt about being a working mother, because I hate that. I agree. I hate that we feel guilty. And I think that there will always be some level of guilt that I will feel because I think that I should always be doing more, even though I tell everyone you should not feel guilty. I will. And I'm telling myself I should not feel guilty. There's always something in the back of my head. Um, but when I see that my kids are inspired by it, when I see that they see that you can create your own job from scratch and that your dreams can come true and that granted life is not perfect, but you can be what you want to be type of a thing and they can see it realized to me, that makes the time that I'm away from them working worth it. Um, I also feel very lucky to be in a community where the majority of my friends here in Los Angeles are other women who are entrepreneurs for other own businesses. A lot of them are mothers as well, mm -hmm. but you see my friends who have other companies that are multi-million dollar companies and that they're making stuff and it's sold in stores and all this stuff or they're photographers or illustrators or whatever it is. And granted, the kids don't know the logistics of these businesses, but they just see all these women running businesses around me. They don't. And, and the weird thing is they don't even know any of my friends who have normal jobs who go to us. <laughs> unfortunately, it's just because a lot of my friends who I see mostly are other entrepreneurs because that's what I feed off of. That's what inspires me. That's who I need to vent to. And that's who I need to like be able to know that someone else understands what this crazy life is like. Um, 
But it's great because, you know, Ruby, who's old enough, she's five now, who can talk about maybe what she wants to do someday. And, you know, they're still figuring it out. She says she wants to be a designer and she wants to, like, design stuff at Target and call it over. Oh, my gosh. We would all buy that for sure. (laughs) I definitely want the Ruby line for sure. I obviously want her to follow her own path, but she's just, she's, she's very captivated by what I do these days, which is very cute. And she just loves just seeing, I mean, my office is like crazy colorful with stuff everywhere and it's a kid's dream. So of course she would love that. But I think it's setting the example really at the end of the day, it's setting the example that seeing your mom love what she does and being, and something that she, she made on her own. So, so inspiring. Is there something that you are seeing in business today that you're seeing young women or women do or act a certain way that you just think like, girl, what, what are you doing? Like if you could stand on a soapbox and speak to women, what is the one thing that you would say like, oh, you gotta, you should be doing this. Or if you only did that, it would make such a difference. You know, I don't know that I feel like I could strongly say one thing because you know why I, I don't feel like I could judge saying that somebody else is doing something wrong because if it's working for them, it's working for them. My only complaint these days that I see in general is just that I do feel that there is a certain mindset these days sometimes where people think that the work is easy or that things just come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and really for me, like, you know, things where people don't want to take internships or they don't <laughs> want to do the grunt work. It's, it's stuff like that. It's like the early day stuff. It's like when you have to do, when you have to dig your ditches, when you have to, when you need to be an intern, when you need to do stuff that maybe isn't so glamorous because that's how you learn. That's the stuff that I feel like is missing. So I don't know. That's not necessarily speaking to business owners. It's speaking to anyone in general, graduates, kids in college looking for experience back in our day you did internships a ton of them you Mm -hmm. granted you hopefully learn from them that's the point but sometimes you get coffee and sometimes you have to run errands and you know it's not glamorous and I think that's the thing is I think that these days people expect that immediately as you walk into the door into an opportunity that you get to do every single glamorous part of that job or that position at that company and that is never the case I am own my own business and it is not glamorous most of the time amen so I guess my answer to this question is really more of understand that nothing happens overnight understand that it takes time and understand that you got to you have to do the work for the the glamour, the quote unquote glamorous stuff to come. Um, and that nobody just shows up and all of a sudden everything is perfect and you're getting paid a million dollars a year to do like, take a couple pictures. Um, it just doesn't work like that. I love to preach, uh, don't quit your daydream. You know, I think you and I have probably been on enough panels to hear mm-hmm. people say YOLO and, you know, just do what you love. And if you don't <laughs> love it, move on. And it's, I, I preach a totally different concept of take the paycheck or uh-huh. just take a break. I mean, I think, you know, I, I remember early on starting and reading about some of these female entrepreneurs and learning. I think Vera Wang didn't even start her brand until she was 40. Things like that, where I realized, okay, maybe I, you know, maybe having twin preemies is not the right time to start a business, Mm -hmm. but it certainly can be a time to start a concept. I think for me, I like to say it was, um, 
what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. I felt like my collection started to grow as my life changed and what I needed when they were babies changed when they started to be in school, uh, when I started working more and there just became, um, you know, products just would pop into my head. So I don't think it happens overnight. I think that's the hard part is, is for the dreamers that it is something that, 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 that takes time and sometimes takes a well thought out strategy or can happen organically. So it's hard. There isn't an exact answer to that, but I do think if you, you know, work on nights and weekends on this passion, that it has a better chance of coming together than if you just jump in without a well thought out plan or without too much inventory or the wrong partner. So I just think it, it takes, it takes time. When you started out, so you start out and you have the first product that you guys create is, is the journal. Is that the journal is the planner? Is that correct? No. So we started, I started with just the easy stuff. When you think about it, things that I could print from home again, I would, when I was literally at home, I didn't have any help at the time. So I would hopefully get a, get an hour nap out of my twins, which was rare. I remember hearing them start to wake up and think, no, I've got a few <laughs> totally. orders to print. Totally. You know, feel terrible. But, um, I'd also had my, I would put on a pot of coffee at seven 30 at night and put the babies down. My husband was starting a business at the same time he was uh, is and still is in the in the restaurant business so he'd go off to work at the restaurant I would start designing and printing and uh, literally he'd get home at midnight or one in the morning and then he'd help me load up my car with all my the every sheet that I had printed during the day I'd take it to FedEx Kinkos at the time and they would cut it down into note cards and stationery and stickers and birth announcements and holiday cards. And so that's how it started. Day one was designing and printing. Day two, I'd sort the orders. Day three, I'd go to the post office and literally do the click and ship. Those poor people that would stand behind me as I'd have like 50 (laughs) boxes. I'm like, sorry, pick another line. But no, I, I worked really hard. I I also like to say, um, it's not fair to say that anybody can be an entrepreneur or work like this. I, I feel like I need more sleep now, but I guess you know how it is with kids. I didn't get much sleep anyway, and my mm-hmm. body learned to operate on very little sleep. I probably got five hours a night, maybe sometimes six before, you know, I'd hear them wake up and start again. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just, I don't want to give these expectations that anybody can do this. It was really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So getting a partner was, was helpful into, and then growing teams. And my gosh, now it's so nice to have just such talented people around me that I, it's not just the one woman show anymore. <laughs> have you felt along this process, were there times where you felt like the imposter syndrome? Like who am I to run this company, to build this team, to do these things? Or have you always felt really confident and like, nope, this is my brand and I know what I'm doing? Well, you know, I think um, I, I would, when people say, gosh, you know, you're so lucky. This is so amazing. And I think <laughs> there's nothing to do with luck here, Seriously. Um, it, but I get that often. And I think it is, I looked up to people like Kate Spade and some of my famous favorite brands like Trina Turk. And, um, you know, to this day, I look at, like I said, Vera Wang and some of these female powerful names. I thought, well, why can't that be me? Mm -hmm. And I, as it started to grow in a different direction, that was interesting as, um, I, I 
became friends with the founder of Tiny Prince at the time, Laura Ching, um, and we collaborated on some things. And I think it's sort of connecting with other women that have the confidence to do what they're doing. Um, you start feeding on each other. I yeah. think there's one of my one of my favorite T-shirts is by um, Alice and Olivia right now that say "Empowered Women, Empower Women." And I just think that's um, that was that's part of how you you find your squad. And you get the strength and the courage maybe to do it with somebody else, set up a, set up a shopping party with a few gals. So you're not Mm -hmm. the only one that feels like you're, you know, putting yourself out there. No, I think over time I started to to see, um, I mean, like it or not, it was growing. (laughs) I had to to figure it out. This was a print on demand business. And when the orders, uh, it's funny one day I, I, I've told this story before, but, um, when that I got all my Christmas card orders out and this was 2005, I guess it was. And I thought, Oh, I'm so ahead of the game. I got everything out before Thanksgiving. I'm going to be able to enjoy Christmas with my babies and just have a stress-free December. And I didn't think about the fact that people would then be mailing their Christmas cards out. And so that first week of December was when all Christmas cards hit. And I go into my office one morning and my mom used to come on Fridays and that was my only day of help. And I remember hearing, I walked, into my office, pulled up the, you know, the panel that showed orders and I just burst into tears. I mean, it was like, <laughs> there's no way there oh, were this no. many orders. Oh no. And I remember hearing my mom's footprints, the key in the door. And you know, when you just see your mom, for some of you out there, <laughs> that's when you just lose it. I mean, I was like, like a kid again, as I've got these two babies sitting beneath me. And she says, she's kind of rubbing my back. And she says, you know what, Aaron, your mental health is more important than anything, we are shutting this down. You can tell all these people come back next year, but your business is is closed for December. Oh. And then my husband walks in, and of course he sees dollar signs, and he's like, "Oh no, 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 no. we're not, no, we're not, <laughs> we're not shutting this down. We will get through this." And, wow. and somehow we we did with a lot of friends and neighbors at the time helping pack orders, but we we survived it. Yeah. If there's one thing that you could tell the women listening to this podcast, if there's one piece of advice that you could give them that you knew they would listen to, you knew they would adopt it as truth, what is the one thing that you would say? The one thing that I would say, gosh, again, I I just think it is um, to not put so much pressure on yourself. And I know that's hard, but understand that tomorrow is another day. And just knowing that you might not accomplish every single goal today, but the pressure that we we tend to put on ourselves, I think just squashes creativity, squashes um, realistic goals and accomplishments. And I just think taking note of that, that we are human, we juggle probably way too much. And just to not be so hard on yourself to make that list, but be okay about, you know, a lot of these gals that I see that even have the planners that do these beautiful weekly spreads. I said, guys, that you need to be ready to cross things off, you know, make it, it might not look pretty. Your planner might not be beautiful because you have to be able to bob and weave to make an adjustment. Um, and I think that is truly the key to finding life balance um, and in, in your work, in your career or the, the balance between the two. I had thought for so long in my life that if I did something and it didn't work out, that it would literally break me. And so it was a shock to 
be sad, but be like, oh, okay, I, I, I can go find another day. And it was this massive aha moment for me that like, I can live my life differently. I can take more risks. I can get rejected. I can fail. And at the same time, because, you know, when I was running that campaign, Rachel, I was so joyful. I was so happy. Every day was like a new day of just feeling like I was alive. Mm -hmm. I was doing things I had never done before. I was in front of audiences. I had never, I was figuring things out. It was all hard and exhausting, but I felt very alive. I feel like I want to make sure that listeners really hear that right now, because one of the questions I get asked most often is about this fear of failure. And there's two things that Reshma said that I feel like are so valuable. One is even in the struggle of trying to run this campaign, right? Like you were loving it. It was hard as heck. I'm sure it was physically, mentally, emotionally exhausting, but at least you were trying. So many people will never feel that because they won't even allow themselves to try. Uh, The other thing that I loved you that you said was that you woke up the next day and you knew I'm still here. I'm I'm still here. I can stand back up. I can go again. And what I'm curious about is, do you think if you hadn't pushed yourself into an unknown like that, would you have ever understood that in the way you did? No, I would have been playing my life and living my life safe. You know, I would have been, I had for so long, my life been giving up before I tried and be like, Oh, I can't do that. Like I talked myself out of so many things and because again, I thought I would, if I didn't work out, I, I wouldn't be able to recover. And it was that fear of not being able to recover that held me back from doing things that I, I knew deep in my heart that I wanted to do, or I had an idea to do. So this was a big juncture in my life for me because it like, it shifted my thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it shifted my thinking to realize that, oh, you could try something and it could like your biggest dream and you could, it could not work out and you could have enjoyed the experience and felt alive and be ready for the next obstacle or journey. And so what was the next obstacle or journey? Girls who code. So, then, <laughs> which is, you know, so then I, I lose, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I lost, but like, I loved it. And so I want to keep change making. I want to keep helping people. Um, what is the one thing that I saw on the campaign trail that like really moved me that I think I can make a difference on? And, you know, my, since my parents came here as refugees, I've literally had a job since I was 12, like Baskin Robbins, retail, like you name it, telemarketing. And I really believe in the American dream. Like I really believe that like through hard work, through education, that you can like march up into the middle class. And my family is really a reflection of that. And so when I was running for office, I'd, I'd go into these New York City public schools and I'd see boys, you know, computer labs full of boys learning to code, not a girl in sight. And I was like, what's going on here? Like I knew Silicon Valley was like a boys club, but I didn't know that that started in high school. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, I didn't understand it. So I started kind of every day. I got a job as, you know, working in government, but during my lunch break in my, at night, I would go meet with people who were professors teaching computer science, you know, uh, teachers that were teaching science and education, like organized, like women. Like I just wanted to learn everything there was about why were there not, why were women not in technology? Why were less than 18% of the technology force female? Why were, you know, computer science classes in high school or middle school, only 20% of them were girls. Like why, 
and kind of came up with this idea about teaching girls to code in summer camps that were free. And here's the thing, Rachel, I didn't know how to code. I did not. Mm, I didn't know that about you. How funny. I was a poli-sci speech vacations major. I was terrified of math and science, but because I ran that campaign and tried something and it didn't, again, it didn't break me. I suddenly felt like, wow, I could take out other challenges about things, not be a perfectionist and just, and it be okay. And so it didn't occur to me that like, I had to learn how to code and be an expert in a subject to start something. What I felt like was I needed to have passion and the will to want to make a difference and want to, and want to create opportunity for girls. And that's where I was coming from. I think that we raise girls and boys differently. Absolutely. So we encourage boys to, and I have a son, so I, I, you know, my family is guilty of this too. Like, you know, we encourage our boys to like crawl to the top of the monkey bars and just jump, you know, to man up, to toughen up. And it's normally kind of through physicalness, but with our girls pretty much from 30 months, we are protecting them, you know, one in the name of, of again, physical danger. So we'll like, be careful, honey, you know, don't swing your swing too high. Like, mm-hmm. is your dress dirty? Let me clean it up. Like, did you get that toy back from her? Like, say sorry. So we're, we're insulating our girls from danger and failure. And we're doing the very opposite with our boys, right? I'm a big believer, Rachel, in our girls. Like, I just, I think that they're, they're going to heal us. They're going to save us. You know, they're going to lead us and that the more we can do to kind of invest in them and allow them to kind of create, build and innovate, like they're going to solve real big problems. Mm -hmm. And that's also why I wrote this book, because I realized that many times the thing that's standing in their way is not their ability, but their perceived ability because of perfectionism. So it's all, they immediately go to like, I can't do this, even though they haven't even tried. And it's what it's them thinking that their mindset is fixed, that I'm either good at something or bad at something. And all of us have kind of gone through this, but how can you unlearn that? And I think you, again, you unlearn that through bravery and through failure uh, and through risk taking. We all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend and inner expectations, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to do a better job of washing my face every night. Um, That's my own inner expectation. So upholders regularly meet outer and inner expectations. So they, they keep the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if it makes sense. So they are making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they will do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, uh, unjustified. They always need to know why. And their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this tendency. This was sort of the origin of the whole tendencies framework was when a friend said to me, the thing that's weird is I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, Mm, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, no problem. But when she was trying to go on her own, it's a struggle. 
So the so obligers need outer accountability to meet those inner expectations. So their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. Then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like they wouldn't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they're going to think, I don't know what I want to – I just want to wake up on Saturday and see what I feel like doing. And I just the fact <laughs> somebody's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. Um, and their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. You know, there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution. And people want to say, like, the secret to life is to get up at 6 a.m. and go running first thing or, you know, and or, or you know, everyone should have 100 friends. Or, or And it's like, well, maybe <laughs> every, we're all different and, and we're happiest when we have a life that reflects our own interests, our own values, our own temperament, our own, you know, um, character. And the more that I tried to know myself and shape my my life around what was true about me instead of some fantasy self or the way I, I assumed I should be or what other people expected me for, to be, then I became happier. So that one thing that the, like we each have to figure it out for ourselves that everyone's happiness project would be different mm-hmm. um, was, was really kind of important for me. Because I was like, well, just tell me the best things to do and I'll do them. And it's like, well, nobody can write that list. Only you can write that list for yourself. Yeah, I think so. I became aware of you for the first time when one of my good friends, I I was going through a hard time and Mm -hmm. she, I was going through a hard time as a mom Mm -hmm. and she gave me this quote. She was like, Gretchen Rubin, act the way you want to feel. Yes. Act the way way you want to feel. And I was like, it was like, it seems like the simplest thing. It seems like something we should all already know, but it was an epiphany to me. Will you talk everybody through that idea? Well, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that struck a chord with you, especially at a tough time. Um, Yeah, this is a kind of a well-established psychological principle that we think that, or we assume that we act because of the way we feel, but to a very large degree, we feel because of the way we act. So it's like your brain, your brain is thinking, wow, there's so much yelling and slamming of doors around here. I guess we're really angry. And then that amplifies your feeling of anger. And so what this means is you can use this to your advantage. So like, let's say you're feeling very sluggish. If you act with more energy, if you walk more quickly, if you talk with more energy, you will start to feel more energetic. Or if you're feeling really shy and you're like, okay, I'm just going to pretend to be really friendly and outgoing, you will start to feel more outgoing. Um, If you are feeling very resentful or angry at someone in your life and you think, okay, I'm just going to show my gratitude for for this person, you will actually start to boost feelings of gratitude. Or like, you know, don't wait until you feel like kissing your sweetheart because just go ahead and kiss. And from the kiss comes the feeling of affection. So this is a a lot of times we feel much like our emotions are just happening to us. But this is this is one of the many ways where we can actually direct our emotional um, our emotional state. I think it's very hard to just like sit there and change your emotional state from the inside. So I'm always looking for like, what can you do on the outside to go in and acting the way you want to feel is a way to do something. It's, you can, you can make your, you can't make yourself feel loving, but you can, or at least I can't, but I can make myself kiss my husband. And then if kissing Mm -hmm. my husband makes me feel loving, well then problem solved. So many of our listeners are, um, they they focus so heavily on the goal. And one of the things we're talking about a lot lately is falling in love with the process. Yes, yes. Like 
the, the goal could be a decade from now. You could be so far away from your goal, but you can learn how to enjoy today by enjoying the process. And I love that you're grounding yourself in the joy that you find in the research. Well, it's funny that you said that because my father says that all the time, enjoy the process. And it's mm-hmm. actually one of my 12 personal commandments because it's so true because – um, because the thing is, if you enjoy the process, even if like I wrote my book, uh, 40 ways to look at JFK, you, you do not know this, but when a book fails, uh, in the marketplace, what they tell you is it did not find its audience. That's how they put it. So that book did not find its audience, <laughs> but I had such a joyful time where I loved writing that book. I mean, I just loved writing. I love writing all of my books. And so I'm like, would I not have done it? No, I would not have wanted to miss out on the experience of writing that book because I enjoyed the process so much. The fact that it didn't work out the way I wanted was was less upsetting. It was like it was oh, yeah. bad, but it was not bitter. Whereas if yes. you're just forcing yourself towards some goal and you don't enjoy the process, well, if things don't work out the way you want, then you've kind of lost everything because you've neither yes. you've 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 hated the pro you haven't liked the process and you didn't achieve it. But here's the thing, also I think is helpful, like to your listeners that you're talking about, is. Focus on, um, on, don't focus on outcomes, focus on actions because you can't say, I'm going to sit down and write a bestselling book because you can't control whether something's a bestseller, Absolutely. but you can say, I can write every day. I can write or whatever your process is. I can hire an outside editor. I can join a writer's group. I can read widely in my, in my area. So I make sure that I'm completely like up to speed. Like what are the things that you can do? What are the actions that you can take that might contribute to that outcome? But if you focus on the outcome, you can't control the outcome. And so it's kind of a waste waste of your mental energy because I think sometimes people think if they just whip themselves up into a a frenzy of desire, that that will somehow speed their way there. But I think actually it drains and distracts people. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, I like to remind the audience and the world that Girl, Wash Your Face was my sixth book. There you go. See, there were five books before that, that nobody cared about. And the irony is that I like, I never, I literally, I have a full-time job. I run a company. I never wanted being an author to be my job because I love it. It's my creative outlet. It's this thing that I do because it lights my heart on fire because I am a book nerd. And I thought, man, wouldn't that be so cool to be able to create a book yourself? So for me, it's always, always about love of the word. And the second that you start to obsess over the audience or the fans or what the world thinks or whether or not it makes like the second you do that, you lose it. Yeah, You lose like the joy of what this thing is for you. And I think that's true. One of my favorite books is Big Magic by Liz Gilbert, yeah. where she talks about this idea that once you start to attach money or fame or success to the thing to like to the creative process that you love it starts to be more about what that creative thing can do for you than whether or not it's bringing you joy I am yes. the queen of Enneagram. It is our favorite conversation here at the office. And I feel like when you know someone's number, you're like, okay, wait, are you an eight, seven? You got to be an eight, seven. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm an eight, seven. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm an eight seven, but I like to tell people that because before I knew that I was an eight, like I really didn't have a framework to sort of organize a lot of my experiences that led up to this moment. But the minute I took it, I was like, oh, what? Yeah. Now my life makes sense to me. So it was, it's been, it's been really exciting. I don't know a lot of women who are eights who will confidently yep. claim that number. And if you don't, if y'all don't know what we like, we're speaking in a language right now. If you please, I I feel like I've talked about 10 million times. You can go Google it. But if you understand Enneagram, you understand the eight is the challenger, which oftentimes Mm -hmm. gets a bad rap. But also the eight is a world changer. Mother Teresa was an eight. Martin Luther King Jr. was an eight. Like there are so many powerful eights, but not a lot of women. Of course, your your whole thing is about power. Not a lot of women will own that. What was that journey like for you? Like, were you immediately like, hell yes? Or did it take you a moment to kind of come to terms with it? It took me a moment to come. So privately, I was like, yes, I make sense. I know why this is who I am. Right. But it was a very private thing because then I was like, oh, my God, like all of the things that I thought as a kid, they're true. And like now people know, like people are going to know. And so it was it took me a little bit. But like what I like about the Enneagram is it gives you like the range of how you like what how you are when you're at your best and then how you are when you're under stress. And so when I looked at it, I was just like, you know what, Stacey, all of these years that you've been trying to pretend that you're not an eight, this is what's making it hard for you. Like this is what's making people have a bad reaction to you being a woman who is as powerful as you actually are. What would happen if you just kind of show up in your full eightness? Like what would happen if you did that? And honestly, that's sort of like what happened from, you know, with my TED talk going out, like that happened before I had my big fall. And so it's just like, that was already out there. So when I started documenting my financial journey, which was really hard because it was such a contrast to the experience of doing a TED Talk and traveling around the world. It was like, I have these two really contrasting experiences, but I'm like, if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it completely. And that directly came from me wanting to own my eightness and being like, even in this space where I'm starting over at the bottom, I'm still just as powerful as I was when I was standing on stage delivering that TED Talk. And since making that decision, it's been just like the best thing ever. That's why I always like to mention it because it's just like, when you you know that at the core, this is who you are. It's like, why would you, why fight it? Like why, why rail against it anymore? And the more and more I've embraced it, the more opportunities like rise have shown up that I've been able to say, yes, absolutely. I will surely come to your stage and do my thing. Like versus me being like, oh, pick me, choose me. It's like, I don't have that sort of thing happening in my life as much anymore. It's more people are noticing me and they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, been here. Like, but it's like the reason you didn't know is because I was afraid to really embrace the nature of it. Because as you said, most women are not eights. And if they are eights, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do because people automatically assume that we're going to be like this aggressive, like zero tolerance type personality. And it's just like, no, I'm, I'm all woman. I'm just a different type of woman with a whole lot of power. Can you talk about how, though? How do you step into power when you have been living in another way? Right. Okay. So I think, so I want to say this too about, cause it, it, it speaks to like how to step into the power. So like one of the things with the eight, so much like you, how you were dealing with anxiety and really bad coping mechanisms, I was doing the same thing because I wasn't being my core self. So one of the big issues with people who are an eight is that their deepest fear is being controlled. <laughs> and so they don't like to be controlled at all. And so they challenge a lot and they rebel a lot and they rail up against things a lot because they're attempting to not be controlled. But when 
you're doing that and you're naturally someone who's powerful, it ends up putting you in very dramatic situations, which then turns into you then having to fight your way out of a lot of stuff. So there, I, I, I noticed that like once I, much like you, like I was in a state of... So I'll explain it this way. At the top of 2017, I experienced something called nervous exhaustion and like everything shut down. Like I couldn't think I could barely get out of bed. Like I, my body was in so much pain that like I, like I had gone to the doctor cause I couldn't figure out the pain. And he was just like, yeah, you know, I think you have fibromyalgia. And I was like, absolutely. No, I don't. I was like, that is not a thing that will exist in my body. Like that is not a thing. And it was, and it was, it was terrifying for me because I had had examples of women in my family who had fibromyalgia. I had, so, so as the doctors are trying to explain to me that like, you know, my system is shutting down and this is what's going on. I was just like, you know what? There has to be something that I'm doing wrong in life because my body is having a reaction that it shouldn't have, especially since the nervous exhaustion was preceded by the peak of success, like the peak of happiness. Like I should be on cloud nine right now, but I am in a devastating, debilitating level of depression. So anxious that like, I was like afraid to leave my bedroom sometimes because I was just petrified of like what would be out there. And so it was the catalyst because I was like there, I have to be doing something wrong because when things are going well, like like even if you're in pain, you don't realize that you could still also be doing something wrong. And I was just like, okay, so my insides don't match my outsides and I need to fix this or I'm going to have fibromyalgia. And that is not something that I want to have. I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be bed bound. Like I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. So I need to fix this. And I have a whole entire child <laughs> that I'm also parenting while all of this is going on and it's very debilitating. And so I was just like, okay, I am here and I need to figure out how to get out of here without like without and, and get out of here in a way where I don't come back here because I had gotten sick before, but it was never as bad as this because I think I had so much more awareness because I had had therapy in the past that the I was super aware of how bad things were. And so the first thing that I did is I was just like, okay, I know medication tends to not work for me because it numbs me out and then I can't feel. And then I have this false sense of health and recovery and it just doesn't work for me. So I was just like, well, people keep saying food can change things. Let me try food. And so I found this book, The Ultramind solution where he talks about an elimination diet and how some foods cause inflammation and all this other stuff. And I love the book because it, for the first time, I learned the connection between what we eat and that being fuel for our body. Like I wasn't taught that. So I didn't know that what I was eating was affecting my body and my mind and all the other stuff. So the first thing that I did was I cleaned up my diet. And then once I cleaned up my diet and I found the foods that literally were toxic to me, like potatoes, um, <laughs> I, 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 I I eliminated all of those foods. And then I, because those foods were eliminated in combination with me going to therapy, I was able to gain some clarity. And I was just like, okay, now what are you going to do? Because you need to rebuild. And at the time I couldn't work. I couldn't get on stage. I remember I had a speaking engagement and I was so depressed that like they called my name. I went to the the, the microphone stood there. And as I was looking out at everybody, like I was so overwhelmed that all I could do was walk off the stage and walk out of the building. I didn't say anything. I didn't take it, but like, it was horrible. So I knew I wasn't ready to get back to like that level work. Cause I was just like, I don't know if you can recover from that. Um, but I was just like, you need to make money because you haven't been working and you have a kid and you have to figure this out. So I was just like, okay, well, I need to restore my financial dignity. I don't have the emotional capacity to, you know, use my degrees and go to work or use my 
my experience and rebuild a company, but I do know how to work. So let me find a job that will allow me to be able to work, but it won't be mentally and emotionally taxing because I really need to focus on healing full time. So after, so my diet was under control. Then I made the commitment to restore my financial dignity, got a part-time job working at a cafe. And then I was just like, okay, well, money seems to be a big stressor for you because the money coming in stressed me out, but also the amount of money going out stressed me out. So I was like, I need to get my finances in order. What better way to do that than Dave Ramsey and then telling everybody on the internet about it so I can get some accountability. So I literally like opened up my computer and was like, hey, internet, I don't know how to deal with money. I know how to make it, but I don't know how to manage it. And I'm going to learn how right in front of you guys because the internet is going to hold me accountable. And what ended up happening is... I, I, I realized too that I heal very well through talking out loud. That's why therapy is incredibly effective for me. And what ended up happening is that as I was documenting my financial journey in real time, I really started to clean up my finances. And the more my financial dignity was restored, the more like mental and emotional health and healing was brought back to me in combination with my diet changes, in combination with me only working part-time. And then slowly but surely, like I was like, okay, well, I feel like I can handle one revenue stream in my company. What would it be like to monetize YouTube since more of you guys are following me. So then I started to monetize and then I just slowly but surely like rebuilt my company to a place where I was able to earn consistent enough income for me to be able to um, resign from working part-time at the cafe and replace my income with my company. And then I'm working in my company, my income is replaced. And I'm like, okay, now we're going to put ourselves back out on the stage because this is your top talent. This is really what you want to do. But as you come back out here, you have to come back out here with the wisdom that you gained in rebuilding your life this way and changing yourself in this lifestyle because this is who you really are. You cannot get back up from this and be anybody else but this person that you've been with in this very dark season. And so I would say that that's actually the most like detailed, practical way of how I actually walked my way back into the power. I changed my diet. I changed my lifestyle. I restored my financial dignity. And then I went back to using my natural gifts and talents to serve the world and ultimately earn enough income to be able to afford to be able to take care of myself at a level which enables me to be able to heal full time. What are your core values? You know, you guys are so wrapped around this idea of impact and what does impact look like to you? And if you're listening to this, it doesn't have to be the same as Tom and Lisa or the same as me, but what are the core values that you want to show up for with your community? Because I do think lots of people who have been putting good out into the world will hesitate to do that because they're going to get opposition no matter what they're posting. And that scares me because if the people who have been creating content to make the world a better place start to be too afraid to post, then I feel like evil wins, right? Then I feel like the only thing available in news feeds is vitriol and hatred and division. And so if you are a content creator and you're listening to us have this conversation, man, I just want to encourage you to double down on goodness, triple down on positivity, even if you're going to get shit for it, because better to show up as yourself in a world where so many people are afraid to create 
than to hide away and like hope that it's going to go away because it's not, not for a long time. So freaking true, girl. And um, I've been trying to kind of like put this into like a phrase that I can kind of repeat to myself. It's not perfect yet, but the thing that I go with is I'd rather be um, rejected for being true to myself than accepted for being a false. And I remind myself of that every single day, because every time you're putting out content, whether you're in the content world or not, right, whether however you are showing up at the end of the freaking day, it is you at the end of the day that lies down, closes your eyes. And how do you feel about yourself? And I, that's what I'm going back to though. I'm just reminding myself, how do I want to feel about myself when I am by myself, period. And if other people don't agree with my opinion, that is their prerogative. Everyone has the freedom not to, but I will not then, I will not act to please other people. Because when I'm by myself, do I say, I'm proud of you, Lisa. I'm proud that you stood up for who you were and what you believed in. Um, And I keep reminding myself of that. So how do you feel like, I mean, starting a business after the 2008 collapse, I mean, starting a business in 2009 is ballsy. How do you feel like that has prepared you to handle where we're oh at my right god now. in so many ways because it's like the proof is in the pudding right i was naive enough to not realize how badly the economy was and starting a business in 2009 was the worst time ever you know so i was naive to not even realize that was a bad strategy and um and then in you know the protein bar market um, alone, it was completely deteriorating. Like all the health stores, their department in just the protein bar market was almost non-existent. So when we came around, they're like, guys, there's like 1,200 bars on the market and none of them do well. What the hell are you thinking? But the, yeah. it comes back down to the notion of be so freaking good, Rage they can't ignore you. Right. If you're that good, when our protein bar was that good, despite of the economy, despite it not being a necessity, the fact that we put everything, we believed in the product, we wanted it to succeed. We did everything we possibly could. We put all our money behind it. We wouldn't put out garbage. Like we made sure that our value was so much to other people that they couldn't help but part with their $3 for a protein bar, right? That's when you know that um, what, what you're doing is is hopefully going to be successful where someone is willing to part with you know whatever you're offering because what you're offering is so much more than what they have in their pocket like that's what you need to focus on be so freaking good they cannot ignore you it's like can i even just talk about your live event for a second right it's like you're in the livest event space. Your entire business is built about going in, pe- in front of people. And now the world, cl- the world closes down. While most people rage, go, oh my God, my business is over. You go, hmm, what can I do? I know, let me do it online. And let me be so freaking good that people are going to want to buy tickets. And what did you do? You went out, you sold tickets, you freaking smashed it. And you were so good, you couldn't be ignored. So that's what people need to remind themselves. It's not even just about the world. It's about you. Right now, we're all in a situation we cannot control. Like, we cannot actively... I wish I could. I'm I'm that type of person that wants to take ownership over everything, Rage. So I wish I could take ownership over it. I just can't. So I go, okay, with all the things that are out of my control, what can I control? And the thing I know without a doubt is my mindset, period. 
No one has authorization to control my mindset except for me. And so when I think about that and I think I, I can naturally um, fall into the woe is me, oh my God, this sucks, like ha- what is happening to the world? Like I can easily fall into that, which is why I always remind myself that I have the choice. I have the choice on how I respond. I have the choice on what perspective I look through, right? What lens I'm choosing to use. Like that is my choice. It doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that people don't have just the utmost excruciating things that they have to deal with, but how they emotionally show up is a choice. And once I take ownership for that, to me, that is the most beautiful thing. Like that is the most freeing thing a person can possibly tell me. So um, that's why I love repeating that because while in a world where things are not in our control, I feel like I need to have something that I can control. And my mindset is that. So, so if you're listening to this right now and you're like, I want to have, I want to be in control of my mindset, but I have no idea how one even does that. Is this the way you've always been? You've always sort of had this perspective or this is something that you've learned? Oh, 100% something I've learned through um, growth, evolution. Um, as you know, I was a housewife um, for eight years and I just want to say like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a housewife. Like it can be the most beautiful choice a human can make. I didn't make that choice. I fell into it and I didn't want to be. And so my culture being very Greek, very traditional, um, I'd kind of been... Um, coached, if you will, to turn into that. And so I didn't realize I didn't want it until eight years had gone, you know, I was miserable, I wasn't happy. And so I realized, okay, well, in order to build the life I actually want, I have to actually do something about it. Like, I cannot just sit at home waiting for my husband to come home and fill my life with joy like that's not fair on him that's not fair on our relationship and that's not fair on me so I I have to act I have to take ownership and so that has been like a 15-year journey of how do I do that how do I identify things and a lot of people I think um people have their own like um struggles for me it was emotion it was the second I would feel emotional it would warp how I would think it would overtake my body I would say things that I didn't mean I would say things I would regret and I started to go is this the life I want is am I the human that I really dreamed I wanted to be and the answer was no and so over time building quests I started quest forced me to look nakedly at my inadequacies right (laughs) yes I love Tom (laughs) I freaking love Tom I I will say like being friends with Tom and Lisa is one of the greatest gifts in my life because you are two of the most unique people I've ever met ever and I, I don't even remember what the prompt was. We were having like a mastermind and I asked something and Tom, what did he say? He's like, I stare nakedly at, at my, my inadequacies. <laughs> and everyone at the table was like, what the hell did he just say? But there's something, look, he is not for everyone. He's not. But his perspective, like if you have any sort of... like I get him and I get that sort of like mentality of kind of coming at yourself of uh, I because I've you know he said this in that same conversation is like sometimes you have to come at yourself Mm -hmm. sometimes you authentically have to be your own coach you have to get in your own face and you have to be honest about where you're messing up what's going on what are you going to do to fix it like I love that about him 
<laughs> yeah, and this I lo- I knew you love that quote, which is why I repeated it. But it's true because so you have to stand nakedly at your anatta courses and nakedly so that there's nothing that's tricking you, right? It's like, mm. but look at it and go, okay. I'm bad here. I'm very bad here. But the great news is I can get better if I want to. And it's that shift in mindset that honestly takes me from not believing in myself at all to believing I can accomplish anything. So for instance, if I was to say to you, Rachel, so do you play an instrument? Um, not since I was a little girl. Okay. Um, what instrument did you play? Clarinet. Okay. Um, do you, <laughs> Karen, all right, I don't know where to go with that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for instance, example. Do you want me to say something cooler? Yeah. Something cool. I don't want to offend okay, anyone that plays play the clarinet. electric guitar. All right. So if I was to say to you, Rach, you know what? You could be the world's best electric guitar player on the freaking planet. Would you believe me? Yes. Okay. Why do you believe? But me? it's me. Like I know. I, I know. I really <laughs> but but let's I one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Anyone listening? If I had asked that same question, what would their answer have been? Probably no. No. Okay. Yeah. So explain to me, Rach, why you said yes. Because I truly, with every fiber of my being, believe that we can achieve anything if we have the right information and we're willing to work for it. Boom. Precisely. Right. It's like. You could be world-class at it if you decided, I don't want to be a mom anymore. I don't want to run my own business, right? right? I don't care about my health. Like, But there's a world where you wake up, you play the guitar, you go to bed playing the guitar. You do that Mm -hmm. for 10 freaking years. I pretty much guarantee you, you're going to be good. Yeah. So now the question is, who the hell wants like you don't want to give up your life to play the guitar but that's a choice so now I go back to how do we empower ourselves with our mindset we say can we achieve something doesn't mean it's not going to be freaking hard it doesn't mean you're not going to have to sacrifice it doesn't mean you may not have to give up everything that you're not willing to give up but tell yourself that that's then the choice you're making I choose not to sacrifice I choose not to give up my life I choose not to do x y and z to achieve this but at least doing it with your wide your eyes wide open to me is empowering I love you have a good night tell Tom I said hi I will all right bye (laughs) the Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me Rachel Hollis Our show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production.